Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me. Father, it's, it, it's a hard reminder, but a very needful one. Life with you ought to be and is, if it is sincere, a life of thirst. A life of thirst that is never fully slaked. Because no matter how deeply we drink of your glory, the glory that is in the face of Christ our Lord, we never find ourselves fully satisfied. At least we ought not. And Father, we must confess, if we are honest, that our hearts do become cold, that we find ourselves in many ways satisfied, not thirsty. And it is truly largely because we have such a superficial understanding. And the great tragedy of it is that we are so often content with that superficiality. We are ready, as the Puritans used to say, to chase the feather and to follow after every distraction that comes our way, to even pursue distraction, to find time and energy and enthusiasm for everything except for nurturing a true and a living and a profoundly deep knowledge of you that is in Christ by the Spirit, a knowledge that provokes and that perpetuates our thirst. Father, it's a good reminder, and I pray that you would make us a thirsty people. But we know that you don't work in a vacuum. It's not enough for us to pursue whatever we would pursue and say, Lord, make me thirsty. We have to run our race in a faithful way that we will become thirsty. Father, as we return to this most marvelous epistle, I I pray that this splendid and profound presentation of Jesus the Messiah would contribute in this time, in this day, to nurturing that thirst that we would leave today with minds that are captured, with hearts that are captivated, that we would leave here with a renewed thirst, a thirst that we will only be able to address through the 
living and vital exercises of prayer and study and contemplation, mutual ministry of the life and the glory of Christ to one another. Father, in these days that are filled with so many distractions, so many preoccupations, so many things that capture us positively as well as negatively, I pray that you would do a mighty work of drawing us back, making us to be as hinds feet on high places, ever pursuing and never fully satisfied, always thirsty, always drinking, always longing, always pressing forward. So meet us in this time. We plead with you by the Spirit to make it fruitful. Truly, Father, capture every heart and mind here today. And according to each one's need, according to each one's understanding, according to the measure of each one's faith, minister to us in a way that will tend towards our growing up in all things into Christ who is the head. Be honored in this time. Cause Christ to be glorified. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, we return to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning and we'll be finishing off the chapter. Uh, The last time we were looking at this theme of the blood of the covenant and all of the ways in which that, uh, that, that played out in Israel's life in the covenant relationship between Israel and God. I'd like to read with you, beginning at verse 11 through the end of the chapter, because this again holds very tightly together. And since it's been a couple of weeks, uh, it's very easy for us to kind of have pressed out of our heads even where we've been and what we've been considering. So... Bear with me in that. Sometimes people don't like to read so much so far back, but I think it's, it's worthwhile. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, the writer says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, which is to say not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid, it it goes into force only when men are dead. It is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. 
For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people concerning the law of the Sinai covenant, he took the blood of the calves and of the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, the covenant at Sinai, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavenlies to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he, Christ, would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation with respect to salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Those who eagerly wait for him. As I said, we looked at the issue of the blood of the covenant last time and how uh, all of Israel's covenant relationship with God was grounded in this, or, or at least connected with this idea of sacrificial blood. Whether the ratifying of the covenant, and that obviously began even with uh, the covenant with Abraham. Covenant ratified by sacrificial blood. Also the securing of the covenant, the securing of the covenant relationship with shed blood. That speaks particularly to the priestly ministration in Israel. The perpetuation, the continuance of the covenant depended on that cleansing work. So also there is the idea that we talked about last time associated with blood and covenant, which is the death of the testator, and how that idea relates to uh, the fact that covenant as, uh, as an instrument of God with respect to his people uh, carries with it the promise of inheritance. And inheritance uh, comes forth, in other words, that which the covenant promises the inheritance, that comes into force through the death of the testator. So the writer is is taking all of these ideas and weaving them together in a way to give kind of a comprehensive, uh, broad-based sense of how it is that blood relates to covenant. And it's being enacted, and it's being secured, and ultimately it yielding that which it promises. Now, to this point, he's been talking about that in terms of Israel's covenant life with God. And once again, focusing particularly within that on the the Yom Kippur idea, the Day of Atonement, the high priestly ministration. And that will continue even in what we're considering today. Primarily, again, because 
of this association of Jesus uh, with the high priestly ministration in Israel. He is a high priest of the good things to come, the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the writer connects Jesus' ministration in its significance most narrowly, most particularly with the high priest's work on Yom Kippur. But obviously everything associated with Israel's covenant life with God and all the ways in which that was administered and upheld, all of that ultimately finds its significance in relation to the Messiah and his work. So the Hebrews writer recognizes all of this and, and how it finds its, it, it converges and finds its focal point in Jesus himself. And so all of these themes that he's been weaving together are ultimately pointing to how this fulfillment of all of these ideas has come to pass in the Messiah himself. Focusing particularly once again on the Yom Kippur idea, but with a distinction, with a distinction specifically in, with two emphases, the singularity of Jesus' ministration, the singularity, the uniqueness of it, if you will, the idea of once for all time, for all people, for all violation, the singularity as compared with the high priest ministration associated with Israel and Israel's life with God. And then secondly, also the efficacy of that administration, of Jesus' ministration as Israel's priest. Singularity and efficacy. And those two things are a part of this last section that he's drawing out. So the last message, uh, we focused on the blood of the covenant. Uh, Today I want to emphasize what I see as kind of the core theme here, which is this singular sacrifice, Still blood of the covenant with all of the ideas that the writers developed so far concerning Israel, but now focused in Jesus, but with respect to the singularity of it, which implies the efficacy of it. So I want to treat this first in terms of the concern of the sacrifice. What was this singular sacrifice concerned with? What did it involve? And that's where the writer begins. And then the second piece of it is, is what did this uh, actually accomplish? What, what was the uh, sufficiency of it? And then lastly, what is the ultimate goal or the ultimate objective that this sacrifice had in mind? So with respect to this idea of the concern of the sacrifice, uh, the writer says that it He's established this premise that without the shedding of blood, even according to Israel's covenant, without the shedding of blood, uh, there is no cleansing of anything. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And he says in verse 23, flip back here, it's too far forward. Therefore... In view of that truth, that principle that was manifest through Israel's life with God, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens uh, to be cleansed with these. That's what he's been discussing. But now the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. 
the copies were cleansed in the way that he's been describing throughout his whole discussion of Israel's life with God through the priestly mediation. He says, the things that are not the copies, the things that the copies represent, those heavenly things need to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. The right, so what the writer is doing is drawing on the law's cleansing provision, what the, the law of Moses provided for this, this need of cleansing, specifically associated with Yom Kippur, but drawing that, corresponding that with the better yet corresponding sacrifice and the effect that comes from Jesus' own death. The question that that immediately arises to me, I don't know if it strikes you, but when you read this is he says, the heavenly things themselves, the necessity of them being cleansed with better sacrifices. The question is, why do the things in the heavenlies, why does the substance of which these earthly, the earthly tabernacle, its furnishings, its ministration, those things were copies or shadows. Why do the actual things, the substance of which those things were the shadows, why do they need to be cleansed? Why would heavenly things need to be cleansed? This is particularly problematic, I think, when people think of, as I've said before, that that Jesus is up in a temple in heaven, walking in there, going back and forth, you know, appearing before God, doing his priestly thing. Uh, Why would that heavenly place or heavenly realm of ministration need any sort of cleansing? What's the point of that? Well, here's the basic idea. The writer recognized, again, that Israel's cleansing rituals were symbolic. They symbolized something else. All of the, all of the priestly ministration on the earth was itself a symbolic ritual that prefigured the actual cleansing that has been accomplished by Jesus. So this is, I think, where his thinking is. These earthly things served the relationship between God and Israel. Blood was associated with the covenant. What was the covenant about? The relationship between God and his people, between father and son. And all of these earthly things serve the relationship between God and his covenant son, Israel, through whom ultimately God would become the God of all people of the earth. The need of continual cleansing associated with the earthly tabernacle and its ministration spoke of the underlying relational problem. It wasn't that a shovel got dirty or that an altar got dirty or that the uh, Ark of the Covenant got dirty. It was that those things were the uh, uh, ordained, tangible, manifest way in which God carried out, ordered his relationship with Israel. The uncleanness associated with uh, the tabernacle and its furnishings, 
We saw that in the Yom Kippur ritual, the point of that ritual was to cleanse everything associated with Israel's covenant relationship with God. The problem that those things spoke to was not that material things were unclean, but that the relationship that those things represented was itself defiled. It was itself unclean. It was itself uh, standing in a state of, of inauthenticity or violation. The need for continual cleansing spoke to the underlying problem of in the relationship and the inability of the mediating interface, which was the whole tabernacle priestly system, the inability of that mediating provision within the covenant to actually rectify the problem. These, again, the big idea that the writer, big ideas that the writer's working with are these things. We don't want to think, okay, well, there's a place up in heaven. How can heaven be defiled? That's where God is. God can't be around sin. That can't be right. We're going down the wrong path in our thinking. He's thinking in the way that I'm speaking here. God's design, he understood as an Israelite, God's design for his creation depended on his relationship ultimately with, the, with human beings, but as that was kind of narrowly prescribed in terms of his relationship with Israel, the Abrahamic people. Israel understood, the Jewish people understood, that their relationship with God was not just about them. It was ultimately that they were to be the means by which his blessing would flow out to all the, the families of the earth. Israel understood its own vocation in that sort of a way. Did they fulfill it? No, but they understood that that was their calling. For God's purposes for the whole creation to be realized, he had to have this relationship with his human creature intact because who God is unto his creation is in and through his human creature. who is both a created being and also the image and likeness of God. And so the divine human interface, which is what the sanctuary and its priestly ministration represented, the divine human interface, the relationship as prescribed by the covenant, needed to be cleansed in truth. That's what the point, that's what the writer's getting at when he says that the heavenly things needed to be cleansed with a better sacrifice. The earthly sanctuary represented the relationship between God and Israel ultimately for the sake of the world. And that had to be rectified. It required a cleansing that would reach beyond the outer defilement, you know, washing. Uh, as he talked about the blood, of, you know, the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling the unclean, uh, cleansed to the, the outer person. It needed to reach beyond that, reach beyond that to the inner man where the actual problem resided. It was required for the ultimate reality of divine human communion, the true enduring sanctuary to be realized. F.F. Bruce says, while ritual purification was adequate for the material order in a superficial sense, which is but an earthly copy of the spiritual order, a better kind of sacrifice is necessary to effect purification in the spiritual order. 
If we envision, if we envisage the heavenly dwelling place of God as something uh, that takes on uh, something resembling material terms, and surrounded as we are by the material universe, it's difficult to avoid doing that. We shall find ourselves trying to explain the necessity for its cleansing in ways which are far from our author's intention. But we've already had reason through the writer's presentation to emphasize that the people of God are the house of God, that his dwelling place is in their midst, the cleansing of the ultimate dwelling of God. It looks to, again, God's intent to be in, among, with, with, intimate with his creation in and through the human creature. That's the reality that's in the heavenlies that the better sacrifice addresses. So what is the concern? It's to do a work of true cleansing pertaining to the true sanctuary. The second thing that he tells us is the sufficiency associated with that. Now, the writers already emphasized that Jesus didn't enter into an earthly uh, holy of holies like the high priest. Yes, his work corresponds to it, but he didn't enter into an earthly tabernacle. He didn't enter with the blood of animals. He entered into uh, the ultimate, the substance, into God's very presence, and that with his own blood. But here he makes clear what was implied by what he's already said, this idea of even obtaining eternal redemption, which is that there would be no further sacrifice. And that's, again, is significant to a Jew thinking through this, this lens of Israel's relationship with God in and through blood sacrifice, and particularly as it relates to this annual ritual of Yom Kippur. Unlike Israel's high priest, which every year went through this ritual over and over and over again, because the actual underlying problem associated with the covenant, the tabernacle, all of its ministration, that fundamental problem was never really addressed. Jesus, the high priest of the good things to come that have now come, have, has gone and offered his own blood once for all time and once for all people, not just the sons of Israel. That's this idea of for many. And again, you know, from, from certain perspectives, people are like, okay, well, what do I do with this? Because I believe in limited atonement or whatever. So how do I, okay, the many means only the elect or whatever. And again, we're missing the point that he's getting at. He's pointing to the fact that the work of this high priest reaches beyond Israel to ultimately the, the world and ultimately the cosmos as that realm that Israel itself was to be the instrument of bringing to God and never could. Because Israel could not be Israel, therefore it could not administer its vocation of bringing all the world back to God. So Jesus' sacrifice, unlike the high priest's sacrifice, is a once-for-all, once-for-all people sacrifice. And he makes this point, indeed, that just in the nature of the case, it couldn't be more than once. Why? Because he, it's his own blood. It's his own blood. The high priest, yes, it was only once a year, but 
the point is that the same priest could have even day after day after day executed that ministration because he was bringing the blood of sacrificial animals. If Jesus brings his own blood, then it says there can only be one sacrifice. This is where he's going in this, there you can only die once. In the nature of the case, he could not have repeated his offering because it involved his own death. There could be no second, no later, no additional attempt at remedy. But in fact, there didn't need to be another attempt. It was a completely successful ministration. So Jesus, again, comparing him with the high priest on on Yom Kippur, Jesus' sacrifice was one sacrifice. That one was an annual one. But also now his ministration, so to speak, through the lens of this high priestly work on Yom Kippur, he now appears... He has presented himself, been manifest at the consummation of the ages to now present himself before God's face. That's what the writer says. Every Israelite recognized that the high priest went in first with the blood of the bull for himself and his priestly family. Then he came out, then there was the second sacrifice. He took the blood back in for the sake of the people, the tabernacle, all of its furnishings. The whole covenant structure and administration had to be cleansed every year. And Israel waited with longing for that high priest to come out, which to them meant that God had in fact accepted this and had brought cleansing for another year. That priest went in regularly in the sense of annually, Israel's high priest, but only briefly. He went in and he came out. This sacrifice is a one-off, but which in, again, a metaphorical sort of way tied to this priestly imagery, now places this high priest in, in, before the face of God perpetually, not just going in and coming out in a fearful way but perpetually, perpetually into heaven itself now to appear before God's face for us, before God's face for us. And he says that he did this, he did this, not that he should again offer himself often, um, but only one time at the consummation of the ages being manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see the sufficiency in the once for all. A one-off, but a perpetual dynamic as well. But also in this uh, aspect of the putting away of sin. The putting away of sin. And we have to understand that concept within, again, this larger argument. What the writer has been talking about, how he's been building his case. Even when we think about this idea of the consummation of the age. Some people have viewed this as 
you know, the eternal state, that that's what the writer's talking about, and he's not. This idea, the NAS renders it the consummation of the ages. And I think that's a good rendering because the idea here is not an absolute endpoint, but a, a, a climactic point in which two things come together in proper relation. A completion associated with the relating of two things together. A completion that conjoins two eras, two ages, is what he's getting at here. A resolution that binds together promise and fulfillment. The consummation of the ages. Not the end of the time-space universe or you know, the end of this world as we know it. That's not what he's talking about. The climactic point in the history of the world at which promise yields to fulfillment where you have the coming together in such a way that the shadow yields to the substance. That's what he's getting at. It's the same way that Paul spoke about the fullness of the times or we upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Even the writer himself begins the epistle by talking about in these last days. God spoke throughout history, in various ways, various times, through his servants, the prophets. Now, in these last days, he has spoken in Son, the one who is the embodiment of himself. God has spoken through the incarnation, not just what Jesus said, but who he is, what he did, what he accomplished. So the idea is eschatological finality, not absolute finality but the, the bringing to a head and the ushering in which, that, which God had intended. The fulfillment of promise that now yields itself to a new reality. That's the sense in which we need to even understand this concept of putting away sin. If we look at the writer's language even, it should, it should, it should be clear to us. He didn't say he did this in order to forgive sin or to cleanse sin, even though he's used that language. He didn't use that kind of terminology. And he didn't say to atone for sin. In the New Testament, atonement language is really the idea, and we saw this earlier, of propitiation or, or the reconciliation dynamic associated with the mercy seat. Atonement language as such does not even occur in the New Testament in the way that we tend to think about it. It's more the propitiatory idea, which you know, embodies atonement. But the point is he didn't talk about atonement here. He didn't talk about forgiveness. He didn't talk about cleansing. What he said this work did was disannul or nullify sin. Nullify sin. It's the same expression that he used previously when he talked about the disannulling of the commandment that established the Levitical priesthood and by implication the covenant based in it. That there's a disannulling of the former covenant because, or of the former commandment associated with the Levitical priesthood and its covenant because of weakness because of non-ultimacy. The writer's connecting the putting away of sin, he's connecting that idea with the setting aside of the former commandment because of weakness. 
in both cases, he's referring to the same sort of conclusive, final annulment. And you might be saying, well, now wait a minute. Are you saying there's no more sin? I mean, come on, that, that can't be true. This idea is not... Remember, this is eschatological fulfillment. This is eschatological finality, not absolute finality. The idea of the annulment of sin does not mean at, in this present time the eradication of sin. It's the idea that Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he says, what the law could not do, weakened by the sin nature God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In the flesh of Jesus, he condemned sin. In the flesh of Jesus. It does not mean, the writer's not saying the absolute eradication of sin. What he's saying is that God has made a conclusive disposition of sin. He has assessed it. He has condemned it. He has put it to death in terms of his own judgment regarding it and his own interaction with it. He has dealt with the issue of sin in the body of the Messiah. He's put it to death in the sense that it is a conquered and an emasculated foe. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Right? Doesn't Paul say that? It is a conquered and emasculated foe. It no longer holds its former invincible power over God's image bearers and therefore over the world that God mediates his relationship, you know, the the creation itself. It no longer holds the same invincible power. And when we think and understand more clearly what this idea of sin is, we can recognize how that is so how sin has been put to death in the Messiah, and yet we still see imperfect people. And that's how I want to conclude this today. But the point is, again, that the writer is making an eschatological point, a consummative, a point concerning that God has arisen and done now what he said he was going to do. We have reached the time of the consummation where God has now in the Messiah come and done what what he had been promising all along. We've been seeing this in the Sunday school hour with respect to Jesus' own message and the way that he, the things he did, the things he said, were to communicate to Israel that now is the time where God is inaugurating his kingdom. God is becoming king. And this is what it looks like. And at the heart of God arising and becoming king was that he would deal conclusively with finality, with the relational problem that existed between him and Israel, the covenant violation. And that would bring the forgiveness that would allow covenant renewal. The ending of exile, the liberation of the captives, the regathering of the human race back to God, centered first in the people of Israel, to the Jew first, then to the Greek, right? 
So his concern here is not individual and personal. Did Jesus die for your sins or did he not die for your sins? This is an eschatological argument. Jesus' death as dealing with sin as such. The issue isn't atonement for individual people or individual transgressions. I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. But the disannulment of sin itself as a reality. The disannulment of sin as it embodies human deviation from the truth. The truth of man being his relationship with God. And I'm going to read something from... uh, Torrance here in a minute. But that's the point that he's getting at. That's the way we need to think about even verses 27 and 28. Death and judgment, he's tying together. It's appointed to men once to die, then judgment. Even so. Right? Even so. He's correlating death and judgment, but in Jesus' own experience. Jesus' experience, but saying also that the correlation of death and judgment in Jesus' experience is precisely a principle of human existence. It's as man that death and judgment pertain to Jesus. He is as true man. This is true of him as it is true of all human beings. But the point is, is that he's focusing on Jesus. The reason why I emphasize that is because this is a familiar verse, I think particularly verse 27. Anyone who's ever taken any evangelism courses or whatever, often one of the proof texts that you're given or one of the verses that you're to give to people is, it's appointed to men once to die and then comes judgment. And what do we try to communicate by that? You're going to die, and your life's going to be judged, and that's going to be the end of it. And there won't be any repentance once you die. So you need to come to Jesus now because once you die, it's too late. Anybody ever heard this verse used in that way? I have many, many times. And I'm not saying that there's no way in which we can maybe get to that sort of an idea, but the writer's making a different point. He's making a different point. If we're going to get to the other understanding, we have to get there through the writer's point, and that's not the point that he's making. First and foremost, as I said, he's, he's underscoring a fundamental principle of human existence. Death is laid up in store. That's the idea. That's, that's the, the terminology. Death is laid up in store for everyone who lives. Birth implies death. Birth implies death. That's the scheme of mortality in the world as we know it. Birth implies death, and death closes out a person's life. It's now a finished book. And therefore, it now is in a place where it can be assessed in its totality. Death facilitates judgment, not in the sense, the negative way we think about it per se, but accurate, truthful assessment. It's not negative or positive intrinsically, judgment. 
That's why in the Psalms, you see the creation rejoicing and celebrating that God is coming to judge the earth. Doesn't mean he's coming to burn it up. There would be no reason for the creation to rejoice in that. God is coming to put all things right. That's judgment. Right assessment and then a right doing according to that valuation. So death now brackets a life and allows it to be assessed in its totality for what it actually was. Not whatever, you know, independent of human perceptions or human convictions, whatever that happens to be. There's a sense, obliquely, in which we can say to people, you know, it doesn't matter what you think about your life, it's going to stand in the stark truth of God's own assessment when you die. But the writer is applying this human principle to Jesus himself, the man Jesus. His point is this, Jesus' life, which was a life of pure love for his father, for therefore his father's will and purposes for him. I have food which you have no idea about, right? Why in the eating? I have food you have no no knowledge of. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and accomplish the work that he appointed for me. Jesus' life was a life, a human life of pure love for his father and the father's will that culminated with this supreme act of love for his father and his father's will that was his self-giving in bearing the sins of many. The sins of the human race, the sins of God's image creature, the sins of God's human race. And that life at his death was assessed and judged according to the truth of what it was. And that judgment yielded the appropriate outcome of resurrection and glorification. Think again about all what, what, how the writer's been treating this and developing this up to this point. The judgment on Jesus' life resulted in what? Resurrection and glorification. What is that? The full consummative entrance into what it is to be human. Ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father, priest, king, right? The human life for which man was created, the regal, priestly human existence of man as God's image son. Now, the writer didn't say all of that in this verse, but he's already built that case from the beginning of the, the epistle. It's embedded in what he said. It's implied, and even implied in his concluding assertion in verse 28. So Christ, as man subject to this principle of death, then judgment, shall appear a second time with respect to salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. What is the ultimate objective of this priestly work of the Messiah. Well, in the first instance, it yielded itself up in new creation, right? Death, 
It yielded itself in resurrection, glorification, the beginning of a new creation that has Christ as the first fruits of it, 1 Corinthians 15. That new reality, if you want to call it the everlasting kingdom of God, is bearing its fruit. Think of the parable of of the leaven and the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman sowed in in a lump of dough and it it permeated till the whole thing was leaven. This new creation inaugurated by Jesus of which he is the fountainhead, the very substance of it as the new human, that is bearing its fruit unto the day, the appointed day when its fruitfulness will be complete at the appearing. And it doesn't mean Jesus flying down on the clouds. It means when he is manifest to the world in a tangible, observable way, then they will see in him and in what he has produced the truth of the Father's purpose for the creation. At that time, God's judgment associated with Jesus' death will be fully disclosed to the whole world. Fully disclosed and fully vindicated. That's what the writer is saying. Jesus died once to condemn and conquer sin. When he is manifest at the end as the living one, it will be to execute God's final disposition of sin and death. In other words, carry out its sentence. Sin and death cast into the lake of fire, right? A final disposition. And so the point is this, with everything, as with everything that pertains to the, the creation and certainly to the, to the human creature, this universal human principle of death unto judgment has now been Christified. Think about that. This principle of death unto judgment itself, which is a human principle, it applies to every human being, right? It too has now been Christified. It's been transformed in the Messiah. How so? Because by taking up our humanness, which isn't just associated with our mortality, but our Adamic humanness, by taking to himself this human reality that includes uh, death unto judgment, Jesus' death and judgment were the death and judgment of every human being. If it's a human principle that all die and all judged are judged, Paul would say, yes, that's true. And as that was true in the Messiah, it's now true for every human being. All, were, all died and all were judged in the Messiah. Remember the the early church father, Gregory Nazianza, said, only that which is assumed can be redeemed. If Jesus assumed our humanness, if he was truly a son of Adam, then his death and his judgment were the death and judgment of all of the children of Adam.
Again, if you think about what Paul says in his treatment, uh, second epistle to the, to the Corinthians, where he talks about this gospel and his own ministration of it, he says this, the love of Christ constrains us. Having concluded this, that the one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. If we want to talk about the universality of the atonement, that's where we have to start. And I don't want to go down that path. That's for maybe another time. But there is the implication and the obligation imposed on every human being. Human existence, as you know it, was crucified, was judged, condemned, put to death in the Messiah. Therefore, the life you live is false. It's not true. Jesus put that kind of humanness to death. When he died as man, all died. It was a verdict and a sentence uh, on all. And therefore, there's a whole different way now of thinking about human beings. We think of no one according to the flesh in the way that we did. In fact, we even saw Jesus in that way. We recognized him according to the flesh. We knew him in that way, but we know him in that way no longer. We regard no man according to the flesh. If any man is in Christ, new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself in Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The gospel is a ministry, a proclamation of reconciliation. And Paul says, here is that message. God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us that word of reconciliation. And so we plead with men, be reconciled to God. And I don't want to go down that path any farther today. But it's, it's something that we very easily miss. And we ought not to miss if we really do believe that Jesus is truly man, that he comes into the world as man for the sake of mankind. If this principle of death unto judgment is true in him, then it has taken on a different quality with respect to every human being. Because it's in that way that we think about him putting away sin, putting away sin in his own death as man. And if that's the case, then the principle of death unto judgment doesn't pertain to sin in the same way that it did formerly. This is why it's so important to understand that Jesus' death dealt in a certain sense and in a conclusive and final sense with the sin of every human being. Otherwise, we we can't get at the argument he's making here. You say, then how can anyone be judged? If, what I'm saying is, is that Jesus' death and the judgment of that, death unto judgment, has transformed death and judgment with respect to every other human being. 
There's still judgment, but it's different. Jesus has put away sin by himself. How is it different? How can we be judged if Jesus died for my sins? Either he did or he didn't, right? Either he atoned for them or he didn't. How can I be judged? Judgment now pertains, and this is because of the nature of sin itself. Judgment now pertains to our relationship with Jesus' conclusive and complete dealing with sin. If you will, who do you say that I am? Judgment now for every human being pertains to that person's relationship with authentic humanness as revealed and secured and inaugurated in the world in Jesus the Messiah. Humanness as the creator knows it, as he intended it, as it is yes and amen in Jesus. In other words, judgment now for every human being isn't, did Jesus die for me for the time that I stole a candy bar or the time that I slapped my brother or the time that I committed adultery or whatever it happens to be? Did he, did he die for that sin? That's to miss the point. Jesus has put away sin And what that means now is that people are judged on the basis of how they stand in relation to the truth as it is in him. If he had not come and been and done what he did, then we would still be in our sin, right? And we would not be guilty of the same sort of sin. The nature of this sin and condemnation has changed. It pertains to our relationship with the truth of what it is to be a human being in Jesus. Death unto judgment in that sort of a way. And and let me just read this this brief section from, from Torrance. His basic point is this. I'll tell you ahead of time. Sin is the contradiction at the very marrow of our beings the contradiction of the truth of our human existence, the truth of what it is to be human, which consists entirely in substance, entirely in terms of its actual substance, the truth of our humanness consists in our relationship with God because we are image bearer. So sin is a crisis at the point of that. It's not behavioral in the first instance. But here's what he says. If sin is qualified as sin by the personal reaction of God against it, as God, what he knows it to be, then it is an objective obstacle that must be taken away. Only God can do that. Only God can do that and reconcile himself to man. And he has done that through the blood of Christ. But also, if sin is an act of man going down into the very roots of human nature and introducing into the very relation with God, which constitutes the human person. If it's that, then it's a contradiction that results inevitably in the disintegration of the human person. It's 
It's, it's a violation, if you will, or a contradiction of man at the very deepest level of what he is. And what man is, man is constituted in terms of his relationship with God. He says, then it is in the inner depth of their personal being that humanity must be reconciled to God and we must be healed of that contradiction, that enmity to God. Such a double reconciliation at once objective and subjective was achieved in the person and work of Christ in his incarnation, in his death, in his resurrection, in him whose person and work are one, we have not only the removal objectively of the obstacle to oneness of mind and will and being between God and humanity, but the removal of it also subjectively from within our human nature and understanding in life because he took it to himself. He didn't just do it objectively out there, but he actually took this to himself and accomplished it in that way. That was achieved in the perfect love and obedience of the Son to the Father so that Jesus the Messiah is himself our reconciliation objectively and subjectively fulfilled. Himself the reconciliation by whom, in whom, and through whom we are restored to genuine, holy, loving communion with God who is our Heavenly Father. You see, we want to look at the cross and say, well, it's really about my catalog of infractions. When really the issue is the fundamental contradiction at the very core of our beings. And that contradiction is the the contrariety of the relation that we have with God. He's not just the truth of who we are. He's the life of who we are. In him we live and move and have our being in in the absolute sense. Jesus dealt with that contrariety, that contradiction, by taking it to himself and putting it to death. That's how he put to death sin. And now by his resurrection, we see what it looks like to truly be human. And therefore, we're judged not because Jesus didn't die for our sins, but precisely because Christ put, uh, uh, put away sin by the death of himself. In other words, now we have no excuse because we see what it is to be truly human, what it is to be defined by I and you, you and me, which is what it is to be human. And therefore, our judgment is the judgment of our insistence on a pseudo-humanness when in Christ, the reconciliation that isn't just ethical but is ontological. We're reconciled to God by being taken up in his life. And Paul says, in view of what Christ has done and what he's inaugurated concerning the human race, it's impossible to think about human beings in the same way. Certainly believers, but even unbelievers. We can't regard men according to the way it was. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ has changed everything, everything. Whether a person ends up ultimately being saved or not, the resurrection of Jesus is God's verdict against that which contradicts, that which is contrary, centered in man's contrariness. 
That's how Jesus can put away sin, and yet we can still see a world uh, um, filled with people who insist on living a human existence that God has already identified, condemned, and put to death. That's how people can still undergo judgment at death, but in a different way, because it's now been Christified. That's what the writer meant when he said that Jesus' parousia concerns salvation and not sin. The judgment of that day will assess and dispose of all human beings, ultimately based on, again, that life as either a pseudo-human life or a truly human one by sharing in the image son. This is where the writer's going to go in chapter 10. If those who despise the covenant of Moses were put to death without mercy under the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much graver judgment will they be counted worthy who have trodden underfoot the Son of God and made into an unholy thing the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified to God? The fact that judgment has been transformed because of Christ himself doesn't make it any less severe. It makes it more severe. If I hadn't come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. If I hadn't done among them what no one else had done, they would not be guilty. What does he mean? My entrance into the world, the truth as it's revealed in me, adds a whole different um, form and manner of culpability and guilt to the human race. It's not whether Jesus died for my bad behavior. It's what will you do with the Son of Man. Father, I know there's a lot in this, but it's profoundly important. And as I prayed at the outset, and even building on Steve's own exhortation, I pray that we would be a thirsty people. We can't be thirsty if we're trivial, if we're superficial. If we reduce the glory of Christ's death, the glory of the blood of the covenant, if we reduce it down to whether I'm in this category of those for whom Jesus died or not, or whether I'm forgiven and I get to go to heaven, we so trivialize the significance of it. Make us a thirsty people. Help us to realize, as Paul did, that the way that we used to view ourselves, the way that we viewed other people, the way that we viewed the world, even the way that we viewed Jesus himself, that now in the light of what has been inaugurated by him, everything has changed. We can't view anything the way it was before. Everything has changed. And for all those that are in Christ, behold, new creation. The old has passed away. New things have come. And how can we be a part of this accomplishment, this renewal, this new creation, and not be thirsty people? How can we be distracted people, a people who have no time or energy or interest in thinking and meditating and pursuing 
contemplating, wrestling with these things, who are content to say, well, I'm forgiven and the blood of Jesus has washed me and I know it's going to be okay when I die, so I'm getting on with my life. Father, make us a thirsty people. Thirsty not just for our own sake, but for the sake of one another. May we truly, and I know I say it all the time, we all fall so far short in this. May we truly, as Paul said, labor with all the effectual workings of the Spirit to see everyone presented complete in Christ. Whatever our interactions, whatever our activities, may that always be the singular goal of our lives in this world. There is a glory in these things that escapes us, that easily eludes us, and leaves us in a place of superficial contentment. Flood our hearts, flood our minds with your glory that is in the face of Christ our Lord, that we would not, never be the same. Even from day to day, we would never be the same. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same likeness from glory to glory by the powerful working of the Spirit who is the Lord. Father, may it be true of us. May it be our thirst in all things. I pray for each one here. I pray that even the confusion and the too much of this message would not be lost. I pray that if it takes several hearings and several hours of meditation and thinking that you would not let any of us off the hook. I have the privilege of chewing on these things all week and, and everyone here gets it all dumped on them instantaneously on a Sunday morning. But that doesn't absolve any of us. The labor, the striving, the wrestling, the thinking, the praying, it's got to be true of all of us. Don't let us off the hook. Don't let us be content to play in mud puddles when we've been promised a holiday by the sea. May Christ be glorified in us, in your church, and in the world as we are faithful to this high and glorious calling. Father, help us in it. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.